you wouldn't teach your kids something that you didn't think was true, right? So that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. That's, that's my transition, right? Like, like, I mean, if you think, this is going to be challenging, and I am not walking on water just for clarity. Um, <laughs> I, I will probably slip. The whole thing's going to come crashing down. It'll be good. Um, so we spent all weekend, what? Like teaching the kids what, what we find in Scripture. Not because we think it's um, a decent recommendation for life or that it'll help them solve some problems here and there, um, but because we, we believe it's the truth of God, that it's genuinely his truth that he wants us to know, right? So we've spent time talking about um, that scripture is the inspired word of God, right? That it's, that it's breathed out by God, that, that every word in here God wanted us to know. And then we spent some time uh, going through the authenticity that what we have is, for all intents and purposes, the, the exact thing that, that God communicated. And we found, like, pieces of, you know, the, this is really, <laughs> I said it would be fine, but my steps are a little loud. Um, but we found, like, little pieces of papyrus that are literally, like, this big from like 100 AD, and they say the same thing our scriptures say. And as we continue to do archaeology, and what you'll find is, I, and I'll probably say this again, as Christians, we believe that like, go, keep digging in the sand, because every piece of archaeology that you're going to find is going to do what? Confirm this. That's a faith statement. I, I believe that's true, personally. We've seen that that's true over the last 200 years of archaeology, of real substantial archaeology, that that's been true. Every piece comes up, and we're like, <laughs> another, another one on the side of Christians, right? Like, there aren't pieces that pop up, and we're like, well, that throws everything out. It hasn't happened, and I don't believe it's going to happen. Why? Because it's inspired word of God, and God's intent on us knowing it. So, so we talked about that it's inspired. We talked about that it's authentic. Last week, we talked about that it's authoritative. Because of that, if this God, if our God is communicating to us truths, he, he wants us to apply them into our lives. And we saw that, that the Bible writers, Jesus himself, everybody saw that scripture was, in fact, authoritative in their lives. And so scripture is here. God's word is here in our lives. That's a tough one. We spend a lot of time on that one, right? Because we don't want it to be here. We want it to be down here, and we want to be able to pick and choose which pieces and parts we don't like, or we like, and which ones we don't like. And the ones that we don't like, we'll, we'll kind of either not turn to it, or we'll kind of ignore it, or we'll rationalize it away and contextualize it and say, well, that doesn't apply to us. And so it's challenging. And so I encouraged us last week to go, let's put it as an authority. But here's the fundamental piece to all of these, right? Now, there, it's kind of hard to go in order of these, like, adjectives as we're describing the Bible, right? Like, I, and it, it took me a while to figure out <laughs> which ones we do first and which ones lean on each other. But they all kind of intertwine. But this morning, we're going to spend time talking about the inerrancy of the Bible. And so we're going to spend time on what that means. And I'll just, I'll throw it out there right now, because I, 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 this one, once again, was a very challenging one for me, as I tried to figure out, like, what does that word mean, and how does it apply, and how does it apply to my application of Scripture, and our application of Scripture. So, before we get started, um, let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. 
we thank you for giving us uh, your truths in our lives. That we can look to this and not just read it as advice, but truth. That the promises you made are real promises. That the statements that you make are real, truthful statements. That, that what you intend to have happen will, in fact, happen. Would that become a comfort to us? We pray that this morning that, that as we read through your word, that we would be impressed more and more with your truthfulness, your character, and your desire to reveal yourself to us. We thank you, Father, for this time. We lift it up to you and worship you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. If you're a guest here, I'm Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors. I, if I didn't get a chance to meet you, I'd love to meet you, so please stop me on the way out. We're having a barbecue at the end of today, uh, so you'll probably start to smell deliciousness as this is ending, so be, be patient. Um, but, um, but hang out. It's kind of a celebratory thing for adventure camp and all that stuff. Hang out if you can. You know, there's no, you guys didn't need to bring, don't, don't worry if you were like, oh, is this the potluck one? It's not potluck or anything. We're providing everything. So this is just for adventure camp. And, um, um, but yeah, so with that, let me dive in. All right, so we're going to start with a different word than inerrancy because honestly, the word inerrancy, um, hang on. Yeah, yeah. All right, it's a little quieter. Um, we'll get to inerrancy in a second. We're going to talk infallibility first. What is infallibility? Infallibility is that something or someone cannot err, cannot make a mistake, cannot be wrong. And so when we say God is infallible, we know that God isn't, he's not deceitful, Right? He's not, and this is based on his character. He's not trying to convince us of something and then going the opposite direction and watching us, you know, and laughing at us, right? Now, the Greeks and the Romans thought that their gods did those types of things, but not, not the real God, right? Not, not Yahweh, the creator God, the God of the Bible. That's not his character. His is one of infallibility, of truthfulness. Um, he doesn't, he's never wrong, he, it, we're not going to find out at some point, you know, God's not like, oh, this is what I'm going to do, and then some circumstance happens, and he has to change what his plans are. That, like, that's not how it works. He's omniscient. He knows all things. He knows the future. He knows the past. He's om, omnipotent. He knows every, or sorry, he's all-powerful, right? So he can orchestrate all of these things. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. It's not like he just controls this place when he drops in over here, and then when he's over here, he can control this stuff. It's not like that. And so these are the characteristics of our God that we discover through Scripture. And so we, we discover that he is, in fact, infallible. So if we looked at Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, we can read something like, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That is true. That is true. You, you, there is no other religion out there. There is nobody that claims the forgiveness of sins. You guys know that, right? Like, go look. They can ignore sins. They can think that you do more good deeds than you do bad deeds. But there are none that claim the forgiveness of sins. This is a true statement. 
And, then, and God says this. He breathes out scripture, right, inspired. And he says, this is true. You know what else is true? You can turn over to Romans chapter 5, verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So when the world says, what's the point of suffering? It's a tough question for the world, because what do they do with that? Chaos, state of mind, just stinks, right? Like there, there's no real good like worldview, like understanding of, of why suffering happens. And so what, do we, what does the world do? They try to shore up everything. They're like, if I put all these things in place, I will mitigate suffering. We, we probably think that we can actually remove suffering, actually. The world probably thinks that they can remove suffering. And if we just made enough money, we could remove suffering. Fa- basically, that's what we believe, right? That's what the world teaches. What does God say? No, no, no. I'm using suffering for good things for you. Oh, <laughs> that's a tough one. Is it true? This is where we, we, we say, well, we have to say it's true because it's in the Bible. You're right. That, that, this goes back to that we read the Bible as infallible. It's based on the character of God. And so we can read these truths, and it's all throughout the Bible. I'm just, I'm not leaving this where it's at. All right, sorry. It's all throughout the Bible. If you go back to Proverbs uh, chapter 30, uh, verse 5. Listen to this. It says, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. What a contrast, right? God makes statements and he says, they may not be true right now, but they'll be proved true. You just wait. That's what he's saying. I mean, Jesus coming back. We're, we're, we're waiting for that to be proved true. Right? In faith, we believe that it's going to happen. But you can go to any other circumstance in our lives, even suffering, right? We can go, it doesn't feel like it's producing endurance and, and hope. <laughs> it feels like it's doing the opposite. But it'll be proved true. And for those of us who are older in here, we can look back in our lives and we can go, yeah, yeah, it proved true. Not only that, and this is, you can go Google these things. These things are pretty cool. Um, so in 2 Kings, the Bible mentions a king named Tiglath-Pileser. That probably is pronounced wrong. We'll just go with it. Didn't, the world said that that person didn't exist. And it's, and it's a profound piece in, in Scripture. And we're like, well, the Bible says that he existed. And they go, we have all the records. He didn't exist. Until like 1850, and then we find a piece of archaeology, and it's like, oh, well, except for this kingdom that, that, that he ruled, and that's all in there, and all of a sudden now that's a, that's a common fact. And, and historically accurate, everybody knows that that's true. And God goes, chink. I knew it was true. I was just waiting for you guys to know it was true. The Hittites, you guys have heard of them, right? Same thing. Didn't exist. Didn't exist 100, 150 years ago. They're like, made up stuff in the Bible. Those people didn't even, did you know that they even doubted that David existed for a long time? 
They're like, the Bible's the only thing that talks about this King David until digging more in sand and we find more archaeology. It's like, oh, there he is. And so what do we see? We see that the Bible over and over again is proved true, which is awesome. And that should be reaffirming to our faith. It doesn't create our faith, right? People believed before those things were developed and made true. But there are pieces and parts in our lives, our feelings, our emotions, our opinions, even scientific theories that have been proven false, but God proven true. Now, I'm not saying that that's always the case as far as scientific theories go, but that absolutely, when when it confronts this, we need to be very careful where we're walking. We need to be very careful, and we'll talk a little bit more about that as we walk through. Or you can look at, uh, sorry, so I don't know if, thank you. Good job, Robert, sorry. I didn't know that I went to that that, uh, slide. Um, Titus chapter one, verse two. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. I'm just going to back up because I, I kind of started that one. <laughs> Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Verse 2. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. God doesn't lie. Now, maybe we've taken that one as just a fact, right? Like that one's, I mean, I would recommend that we don't worship somebody that lies. I mean, we don't normally even hang out with people that lie, right? So us worshiping a God who lies would be ridiculous. And so, but we, but we read this, God does not lie. Now, I'll ask you, and this might be something good for your own reflection, but is there a time when you thought, maybe God was lying to me? Sometimes our emotions and our feelings can make truthful statements a little bit harder to swallow. But there it is. He doesn't lie. If you go to John chapter 17, verse 17. Listen to what Jesus says. He's talking, he's praying to God. This is the high priestly prayer. This is before Jesus uh, is crucified. And he says, sanctify them uh, the apostles in the, the apostles in us sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. You know what that word sanctify them means? Made holy, set apart. Holy does not mean perfect. It means used for sacred purposes. Set apart, right? Like we don't like. You could say. Like the temple pieces and parts like that would go in. I mean, this probably isn't a really good, I, know, I wasn't really thinking about this, but like this table you could say is holy, okay? In so much as it's used for holy purposes, right? Like we don't use it, I mean, we could use it for anything, right? So we don't really set apart things like this, right? But, but in, especially in like the temple, like they would go, this is the table that we put the Bible on, <laughs> right? And maybe you've been to some churches that they have those, right, like up front. And so you could say that that, piece, that inanimate object is, is holy, okay? So, so don't, don't we, we put a lot of definition onto that word holy, okay? But for us as people, it's the same mindset that, that God is setting us apart, that we are here for a purpose. That's what we're teaching the kids. Go make waves. You can change the world, right? 
You're here for a purpose. And that's huge. And so what he says is that his word sanctifies us. His word changes us. That's what he's saying. Your, your, your purpose in life was this, and you read God's word, and you apply it into your life, and you believe in Christ, and now all of a sudden you're over here. He changes us. The word changes us. That's what the word of truth, God's word, does. It's actually powerful and effective. It does something. And then probably the thing that, that we all would, could probably quote, but is very familiar to us, is uh, John 8, 31. It says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, or who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly <clears throat> my disciples. I just want to pause there for a second. He doesn't say, if you casually read my word. He doesn't say, if you have my word next to your bed at night. He doesn't say, if you've got the app on your phone. He says, if you abide, if this is truth, if this is the inspired words of God, if this is an authority in your life, dwell in it, abide in it. And he says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will what? Is that true? Is that really true? Has the truth set you free, right? Like, so we look at this and we're like, that's probably, you know, so here's Paul in prison. Not, not writing this, right? But he's reading this or he knows of this and he's like, so when he said the truth will set us free, right? He's in jail. Or John the Baptist and he's like, Didn't know what that was. I felt like a spider or something. Um, so when John the Baptist is like, hey, tomorrow your head's going to be cut off. He's like, well, Jesus said the truth will set me free. So any minute now. Right? How do we interpret this? What, what does that mean? Well, we talked about it last week, right? What, what, how does it set us free? It doesn't set us free from our circumstances. It sets us free in the midst of our circumstances. That's the beautiful part about it. No matter what the suffering is, right, we can dwell on that truth and we can have peace and joy and contentment knowing that God's in this, that he's producing steadfastness, that he's producing endurance and hope. That's the freedom. That's the same freedom that Paul says, what, what can you do to me? What, what could you possibly do? What are you going to do, kill me? Send me to Jesus? All right. Sounds good, right? I mean, this is the beauty. This is where we get the freedom, and this is where he says the truth, God's word, sets us free. So what do these things give us? They give us confidence in God, in his character, in what he speaks through his word that we found has been preserved providentially, miraculously, honestly, that we have all these manuscripts, and, and as we continue to unfold these things, we're just reaffirmed and reaffirmed that this is true and this is beautiful and this is, this is the truth and this is the hope that we have in our lives. You know, this is awesome. This is fantastic. So that's the, that's the infallibility of God that transfers to his word, right? If God is infallible, then his words are infallible. And if his words are here inspiring the writers and they're writing and 
If you weren't here for the inspiration one, I'd suggest you go back and listen to that one because it doesn't mean, you know, gave them ooey-gooey feelings when they were writing. It actually is like his words being inspired, and we can trust this. But there's a second word, and it's inerrancy. I will tell you, I really struggled with this one because I didn't, I didn't, I've never spent a lot of time on it, frankly. Probably like many of you, I went, I'm good with that. <laughs> and I just walked, and, and I was like, all right, well, yeah, the Bible's inerrant. I mean, except for the errors, but, right? I mean, it's inerrant, but, I mean, I know there's like scribal errors. You can ask Melissa, I, this, was, this was challenging, you know? And, I, and I'm, I'm really honest with you guys when I run, run through these things, because frankly, sometimes I'm like, I don't, I don't feel super equipped. <laughs> and so I'm praying, I'm like, all right, God, like, what, what does this mean Thank God we have the internet, and we have so many resources and so many great brains in history that have written things down and allow us to actually uh, transition through this. Um, all right. I might look at my notes a little bit, because I want to be careful with my words. Um, when God inspired the writers of the Bible... It was without error. He conveyed precise truth, right? God, God didn't, like, mess up. He didn't, he didn't, like, say the wrong thing. He wasn't like, uh, scratch that. Never mind. Erase that word. I want to say this one, right? That's not how God did that, right? He's infallible. So we're, remember, we, and I talked about this during the inspiration. I'm like, we don't really know how he inspired. But these are some of the pieces and parts of the, what, that we take as a foundation. So we go, all right, so here he is speaking truths, breathing out Scripture, um, but retaining the personalities and experiences of the authors. That's, that's the part that we're like, don't know exactly how that works, right? Because we definitely, and not, not only experiences and personalities, but also um, prerogative. So like the authors are very clear, and we'll see this when we get into the Gospel of John uh, coming up here in the fall. John goes very expressly, here's my purpose in writing this. Luke actually does the same thing. Here's my purpose in writing this gospel. And he says, here's my purpose in writing this. So, there's, so these human authors at some level have a purpose and intent. But on another level, God is carrying them along by the Holy Spirit and inspiring the words that they write. So those are true statements. I don't know exactly how they go together. But those are the things that we get as we read through the Bible. So let me ask you this. Did, did, how is Peter's spelling? He was a fisherman. Was it? I mean, this is a good question. I don't have an answer to it. Could it be that he misspelled something? How do you spell doubt? D-O-U-B-T? That's only 600 years old. Prior to that, it was D-O-U-T. Somebody decided to throw in a silent B. <laughs> Just at the demise of all of our kids, Right? <laughs> was the spelling wrong? Did the spelling change? I mean, you may, I, they didn't take me very long to find that word, by the way. If you just go, ooh, like, where is our spelling change? You can ask, you can ask VJ or middle school teacher. You know what I mean? Like, you can ask teachers. Like, like the words change. I won't, I won't throw out the word that I said that I would, yeah. Yeet. 
right? Like if you had the word yeet, like that would be a very contextualized. Most of you guys don't even know what I just said. All right. My dyers would be so proud of me. No, they won't. They'd be embarrassed. So inerrancy doesn't, okay, this is the one I struggled with for a long time. Doesn't mean that Peter didn't misspell something. I'm like 99% on that one. Inerrancy, and this, this, is, this is not me, right? Like these are theologians and pastors and scholars. Inerrancy means truthful, without error in so much as it does not communicate an inaccurate truth. I'm going to dive into this a little bit more, okay? What we need to be careful of, there, there's so many slippery slopes, and this is why it took me so long. Um, because there's a slippery slope where you go, oh, well, there's just all propositional truths, and, and the words don't really matter that much. But we saw last week, Paul spends a lot of time looking at the Hebrew grammar, right? And he's like, look, this is a plural. This is singular, right? Like, like people are looking at very specific words, and I'll stand up here and I'll preach very specific words. And I'll go, this is what the Bible says here. But you know where I won't do that? I won't do that like um, the ending of Mark. There's a long ending of Mark. If you have your Bibles, it has brackets around it. Uh, I'm not going to stand up here and, and we're, we're not going to navigate our entire lives on that because frankly, the scholars are like, we don't really know which one was originally written, whether it was the long ending of Mark or the short ending of Mark. But you know what? There's plenty of, like, there, the only unique piece in that is that you can handle snakes and not, not die, okay? So <laughs> if you want to test that one out, have at it. I'm not going to. Um, anyway, all right. So inerrancy is not defined as without any error, but without any propositional error. In other words, it's true. Okay. Um, not only that, God chooses to reveal himself. I'm going I'm to bring us back, okay? So just hang with me a little bit. I'm going to throw out some stuff, and it might be sound a little chaotic. God chooses to reveal himself in human language. Human language is incapable of expressing God. Right? Some languages are actually more descriptive and better than others. In Greek, there's seven words for love. That's not seven, but that's seven. <laughs> there's seven words for love. In English, we love God the same way we love our brother, the same way we love our wives, the same way we love pizza. It's all the same word. You find another word. What, you put, put really in front of it? I really love pizza. No, that didn't work. I really, really love my wife. No. You see what I mean? And so God is using. So what does he do? He, he condescends himself into our human language. And it's not as if Hebrew and Greek were any better than English. So if we can operate a little bit outside of this and understand that that God has chosen to reveal himself inside of our language and called it his word. He says, this is my word. This is my infallible word. This is my authoritative word. And yet he uses our words. You see, you see the complexity there? It's not quite as crystal clear. It's like, well, no, God chose to do this. Thank God he did. It would have been horrible if it was just like, yeah, God's up there and he didn't really communicate. He, he chose to reveal himself to us in text, in our human language. 
But what do we know about this? So, so here's God revealing himself in our language. to the original authors. And so what you'll hear is that the word of God is inerrant in the original manuscripts. And I believe that to be true. And you go, what God spoke, our infallible God, spoke to the authors in their language at that time, right then, even through an amnesis, right, like a scribe, right, God to Paul, to ascribe all inspired, some, somehow, some way, okay? All right, but then what happens after that? Is this like an expired warranty? Are we like, well, great, we don't have any of the original writings, so how does that help us at all? This was what I wrestled with for a while, because I feel like that statement, it's inerrant in the original manuscripts, is a completely worthless statement to my life. And I go, I, why, why does that matter? What matters about it is that God is truthful and God is communicating and revealing himself to us through his inerrant word, okay? And now we have, he, what he doesn't promise is transmission of it, right? Translations, language to language, all of these things. He doesn't promise that. But look at what he does promise. Matthew 24, 35. And this is actually Jesus promising this. He says, Truly, uh, verse 34, uh-oh, it might be 34. Is it 35 up there? Uh, anyway, it says, in verse 34, it says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So this is Jesus saying his words. His words will not pass away. Back up to Matthew chapter 5, verse 18. Jesus again, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. He goes on to say, I don't think I put it on there. He goes on to say, Therefore whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of God. Of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is saying that the law is not going to change. His, like the commandments are still going to be there, and his words are still going to be there. So Jesus seems pretty confident that what, we're, what we have today is going to still be authoritative in our lives and inerrant. How do, how do we do this, right? Like, how, how do we, how, inerrant in that it continues to communicate the truths as it's translated accurately. So many qualifications. This is like the fine print at the bottom of a thing, right? Or, or the side effects on a drug commercial. This is why I struggle, because I'm like, I just, I feel like, and, and, I, I, and I would encourage you guys, please ask me as many questions, fire them away, because this has really been uh, quite challenging. And I, and I, I as I, as I read this, I read this and I'm like, okay, very clear that Jesus is saying that what he's currently speaking is going to stay. Do you believe that? Is, he, is it true? Yes, right? He's infallible. So he's not lying to us. He's not deceiving us. Is he omnipotent? Can he make sure it happens? Yes. So has he? And we go, okay, well, let's, let's, let's dig through some of that stuff, right? 
So check this out. So then in John chapter 15, look at what Jesus tells us we're going to do. Verse 26. When the helper comes, the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So he's saying we, right? He's talking to the disciples as well, but it applies to us. We are gonna bear witness. We're gonna say, Jesus said this, the scripture says this, and then our job is to go and and bear witness. Did he expect us to perfectly communicate? Is he making sure all of the communication we've ever had that, that we never misspoke when we were teaching the kids, uh, right? Like we didn't, we didn't stutter over a verse or anything like that and God strikes us down. He's like, no, it must be inerrant. No, it's, it doesn't work that way. So, so then how do we understand this? In fact, you can even go to the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Who are we gonna communicate this to? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's all languages. Jesus commands us to translate. (laughs) Well, did he know how languages work? Certainly. So therefore, there's synonyms. Anybody here that's bilingual? Warner, I love that you messed up and you kept going in English when you were supposed to be in Spanish. That was fantastic, bro. (laughs) He's assimilated, right? No, right? But like, if you're bilingual, you go, well, what does that mean? Oh, well, it means this or this. Have you guys ever had this conversation with somebody that speaks a different language? What does that mean? It's this or this. Well, which one is it? Why are you lying to me? Just tell me which one's true. You see, God, God knows that we're going to be translating into different languages. All right. You can read the oldest theologians. You can read the oldest scholars, the oldest people in church history. You can read all these things. And guess what we find? The theology hasn't changed. The doctrines haven't changed. In fact, you see all these denominations around? It's not like there's a version of scripture that one denomination has and another doesn't inside of Christendom. You can't go, you won't go to any of these Christian churches and they'll go, get that ESV out of here. (laughs) Or we only use a Spanish Bible. Or we only use this. Like, that doesn't happen. There is one exception. There's a little bit of a movement of King James only but we can talk about that. It's a separate discussion, okay? Um, there are other churches that do this, but they're not part of Christendom. Jehovah's Witnesses have their own translation. The Mormons have their own translation. Why? Because they change the propositional truths of Scripture. Because if you are with integrity working through this, you're not going to find that there's any difference. So even though God says, hey, these are inerrant in the original manuscripts, when I actually inspired these words, as it comes forward, Jesus is promising that we're still going to have his words. And so we see that as we walk through these different translations, it's okay. God's sovereign. He's able to maintain this as truth in our lives. We do not have an option of saying, that statement isn't true. 
or this statement isn't true because we're gonna find it, you guys, right? I had this discussion with my girls. Like, I'm like, I understand right now. You're like, yeah, every, it's all true. Just <laughs> give me 10 years. And you're, you're gonna run into some, you're gonna encounter something in your life where you're gonna go, I don't want that one to be true. Let me figure out how I can wiggle my way out of this. All right, so let's talk literary devices here. And I'll, I'll be fairly quick with this because here's, and, and so I kind of, I didn't like that because I go, well, inerrancy means no errors, seems like. It doesn't mean truthful. And, and so I just had a hard time with those words. And frankly, I still do to some extent. But let me give you a little bit of examples of why um, errors don't always mean errors. It's actually a very vague definition. If you were to ask me my age, I would say 42. And you could say, you're a bold-faced liar because I'm 42 and eight months and one day. You see the difference? I'm not, I'm not lying. It's the context. Now, if you were to say, you know, hey, I want to know, um, well, how about this? You, 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 don't, you don't round very often, right? Like, you might round, you know, you might round your age. If, especially as you get older, you round a little bit more and more, which is fine. Um, but you know who doesn't, you don't want rounding is your surgeon or your contractor. It depends on the context, right? And that makes sense. And we all understand that to be true. But then we pick up the Bible and we're like, nope, it needs to be this. It needs to be 100% precise. No, we, we don't evaluate anything like that in life. And there's different types of genres, right? There's poetry. How, how scientific is poetry? <laughs> nah, it's not intended to be scientific. When, when the Bible says that the sun rises, should we go, it's ridiculous. See, I told you it was all false. Because we know the sun doesn't rise. And yet, <laughs> you go to the weather app, you don't say, it doesn't, you don't go to the section that says, when is the earth going to spin in such a way that I'll see the sun, right? Like you look for the sunrise and the sun set. You see what I mean? So there's, and, there's, and there's historical narrative. And so like some of that like is intended to be historically accurate. There's metaphors that are used. There's hyperbole. And so we got to be careful. But we can spend our time going, what genre is this? And is it intended what are the intentions of the author? Are they intending to communicate precise truth here? Are they intending to be hyperbolic like Jesus when he says, uh, you know, you should hate your father and your mother? He's not saying that you should really hate them, but comparatively, life should be for God, right? Like, we don't need to dwell on that, but that's a hyperbole. Here's, here's some fairly cool ones that are outside of our culture a little bit. We tell stories in chronological order, generally. Sometimes we mess up, right? My wife adds color. <laughs> that usually makes it not chronological, but it's, more, it's certainly more precise. In, in antiquity, chronology was not as big of a deal. In fact, they would put the stuff that was more meaningful up front. And we'll see that when we go through the Gospel of John. It's not intended to be chronological. Luke spends his time in his gospel going like, hey, I'm, I'm a physician, right? So he's like, hey, let, let's hit this stuff chronologically. John says very clearly, I'm writing this so that you would believe. So let me start with the things that are just out of this world. That, like, this is going to help you believe. Is that okay? Or should we now compare John and Luke and go, they, they don't even know what time things happened. No, 
Not at all, right? Um, in fact, there's actually a really cool, uh, if you go to Luke chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus grabs the scroll of Isaiah and reads it in front of everybody. Let me read for you what he says. It says and the, and the, now this is Luke recording this, right? He says, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. So here, here, Jesus, here's the scroll of Isaiah. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, quote, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. What was Jesus' purpose in quoting the Isaiah scroll? He's trying to say, that I'm, fulfill- I'm here, I'm fulfilling it. This was about me. Ta-da, I'm here. That's what Jesus is doing. That's his point. That's his intent. And he's drawing on what the Old Testament prophet Isaiah had said. Okay, let's go back to the Old Testament prophet of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. Ready? See if you can pick out the differences. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Jesus is a bold-faced liar. See, that's not a truthful statement either, right? You see how the context matters? You could take that out of a little snippet on our stream. All of a sudden, (laughs) I'm a heretic, right? So, these are different. What was Jesus' point, though? What was his point? And here's the crazy part. Imprecise quotation was normal. They didn't even have quotation marks. I know that sounds weird to us. And I feel like there's a, it's a little bit of a sidestep, a little bit of an escape, but, but that's the truth. They didn't really focus on precise quotation. And we would go, dude, why didn't you get that exactly right, Jesus? That would have like been awesome for us. He goes, that wasn't my intent. My intent was to point to the scripture and say that it was me. And what happened? All the eyes of the synagogue were upon him. What did they know? They didn't sit there, right? And he's reading the scroll. Did Jesus skip a line? Did Jesus add words? Did Luke record them differently? I don't, I don't know. But what was the intent of the scripture? Is that a truthful proposition? Yes. You see, you see how these things, there's a lot of blurriness into these things, but we look at it and we go, what matters? That the propositional truth, that the intent of the writers is inerrant. And so our task then is to go, well, and we talked about this a little bit, is this actually the same things that they wrote, right? All right, so we talked about archaeological evidence, and we talked about all that stuff. So I'm not going to bring all that stuff up, but if you want to go back and look at it, it was last week, two weeks ago, two weeks ago maybe. Um, yeah, two weeks ago. Um, and so you can look at all of this archaeological evidence, but here's the problem. Even between the Greek manuscripts and the Hebrew manuscripts, we have variations. Okay, you ready for this? Well, just stick with the the New Testament for a second. There are 138,020 words in the New Testament. Okay? Um, There are between, well, maybe I shouldn't have done it this way, but 
There are between 250,000 to 500,000 scriptural variants in the Bible. So you go, and you, you'll hear, there's more variations in the Bible than there are words. And you're like, eh, what's my apologetic? Jonathan, what do I say? How, how do I defend that? What, what do I do with that? Because it's difficult. And so here's the beautiful part. We have so many manuscripts. Guess what we know? We know where the variations are. When we don't know that there's a variation, that would be the thing that would be scary. But, but we know where all the variations are. We're like, well, we have this one and we have this one. And scholars spend time going, which one is the most accurate based upon all the stuff that we've talked about over the last time, right? Based on how old they are, based on the context, based on all these different things. And so they, they look at them and they make decisions. And then what do they do? They footnote the bottom of your Bible all over the place. In fact, if you grab like a Nestle Allen New Testament, which is like where they actually put this stuff together, I actually showed Melissa it last night and she was like, dumb. It was exciting to me. Um, I mean, it says like, hey, this, it was like in Second uh, Kings and it was um, the, the uh, in the, no, sorry, it was in Matthew 1 and it was talking about Jesus' lineage and it says Asaph and it says Asaph and then it lists every single piece of manuscript evidence that says Asaph there. And then it goes, well, and then there's all these ones that say Asa. That's the detail that we're operating with. And they go, all these manuscripts. And then they go, Asaph is the right answer. But here's, here's the ones that, that differ. Here's the variations. All right, so let me, let me give you this. 99% of all of these variations are totally meaningless. <laughs> They're, I told you about this, right? Um, in, in order to form a more perfect onion, Right, like there's there's spy, uh, scribal errors, there's slips of the pen, there's there's little tiny things, right, that that are 100% insignificant. I go, that's great. I want to know what the one percent is. And frankly, I'm still like diving in because I want to find the ones that are actually the most challenging. Here's what I found: 138,020. The United Bible Society. So um, Nestle Allen produces one Greek New Testament. The United Bible Society produces another one, and they're like I said, theologically, they're the exact same, but two different organizations that put these things together. Compare all the manuscripts. Uh, the UBS lists out all the variations, 138,020 words, and it's like 1,396 variations total. And you're like, oh, well, all right, that's 1%. There's 1% of it is a variation. Of that 1%, ready? 10. There are 10 words that are hotly debated and disagree, that they have difficulty trying to know which one is the original. I don't know which 10. I'm trying to find it. <laughs> I searched for a while. Got to the end of the internet. Still couldn't find it. But I'll keep looking. But 10. So let me, let me leave you guys with this, because I know I'm running along. Um, we don't get our theology, our understanding of who Jesus is, the, the truth of the gospel, from a verse or a word. It's replete. It's all throughout the Bible right? There's not a single doctrine that, le that le lives or dies based on any one of these variants. Even if you had a variant, you're like, man, that's a really big one. Right here, it says that he's the son of God, but this one says that he's uh, the Lord. Okay. Well, could you go find other places in the Bible where it says he's the son of God? Yeah, absolutely, right? And so it doesn't live or die based on any of those things. Um, I'm going to run through a couple of these real quick. So John 6.58. Here, I'll just do it from here. John 6.58. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. 
the bread is not in some manuscripts. Does it change the meaning? Oh, I mean, it was somebody trying to just kind of emphasize what they were talking about. I don't, I don't, I don't know. It doesn't change regardless of which one you pick. Go to the next slide real quick. This is in the same section. So John 6, 59, the very next statement. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. He said these things is what some of them say. There's two variants, okay? Go to the next one. John 7, 8, you go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. Some don't have the word yet. Does it change? In fact, if you go on and read the rest of the context of that scripture, it becomes very obvious that Jesus then goes. <laughs> That's probably why people wrote, we're going to put in the word yet, because we're trying to make it clear what's happening. And we see that even in English. We try to clarify because our words just stink. They're not good. They're not adequate enough to convey the meaning. And so we try to make it clear. All right. There is so much of this. And so here's, here's what I want us to anchor on at the end. We've gone through this, right? And we've gone, hey, listen, like the word of God is inspired, right? We know that it's authentic. We know that it's authoritative. We know that it's inerrant. It is truth. It's truth. That, it, it goes hand in hand with authority, right? And I started this whole thing out with, you wouldn't lie to your kids. You would tell them truthful things, all right, a bunch of you looked at your spouses there and different people. All right, so you wouldn't lie to your kids, right? No, I'm just joking. In the right context, you see, it could matter. That actually, as I'm thinking about this, there's, yeah, we, we do lie to our kids, okay? But kids, we never lie to you. Um, all right, so, so, but like, you see how the context matters. And so this is where when we go to scripture, we can trust it as truthful and we can apply it into our lives. And that's the significance when we talk about it being infallible, we talk about it being inerrant. And when we look at the narratives of the gospels and we see all four accounts, there's all sorts of variations in those accounts. How many, how many of the women were at the cross when Jesus was crucified? Who found, who went to the tomb first? What happened afterwards? How many angels were there? If you talk to any like detective or lawyer, if everybody's eyewitness account was the exact same, I wouldn't trust it. I would say the church has manipulated these things and they made them all the same. If we had one account, that would stink because we would go, well, we only have one. What does God give us? He gives us four accounts. He gives us, how about this? He gives us Deuteronomy that restates Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Thank you. But he does. Why? Because redundancy is part of God's providential control of going, I want you to know my word because I want you to know the truth because it will set you free. Let me pray.